Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Alyssa Ney, Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Davis. Her new book, The World in the Wave Function, is just out from Oxford University Press. Quantum mechanics is full of weird findings. For example, that systems widely separated can somehow still be correlated in their behavior, and that a system may be in two different possible states at the same time. Entanglement and superposition, among other phenomena, have prompted debate since the inception of quantum mechanics about how exactly we should understand what it tells us about reality. In the world in the wave function, Ney defends wave function realism, the claim that the basic representation in quantum mechanics, the wave function, corresponds to a field in a high-dimensional space and that this field and its space is the fundamental reality. Ney defends this controversial view by explaining how the particles of classical mechanics and the ordinary objects of familiar three-dimensional space can plausibly arise from it. She makes the complications of quantum mechanics accessible to non-physicists and clearly explains the motivations for her view, the opposing positions, and the challenges that face any interpretation of the ontological implications of quantum mechanics. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Alyssa Ney. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Um, this is a super book, which is going to tell us how we get sort of, you know, normal cats and normal houses and normal cars out of a very strange world of quantum mechanics. Um, uh, Before we get into the details of the book, um, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to study philosophy and um, how you came to write the book. Yeah, sure. So I'm a professor of philosophy at UC Davis in uh, Davis, California. And I work in philosophy of science, philosophy of physics, metaphysics, and philosophy of mind. Uh, So the past decade or so, I've been uh, focused uh, probably more than half the time now on uh, foundational issues in quantum mechanics, particular uh, how to understand what quantum theories are telling us about the fundamental nature of reality so the metaphysical questions, quantum mechanics, and um, the other kind of half of my research is on the unity of science. So I'm interested in uh, whether and um, in what sense it would make uh, it's true to say that physics is a fundamental science. 
so yeah, I was a I was a philosophy major in college, uh, but my primary major, at least the way I thought of myself at the time, was, was I was a physics major. Uh, I planned to be a physicist, but I was always interested in philosophy from reading existentialists in high school. Uh, but I didn't learn about uh, philosophy of physics being an area of research until my senior year. Uh, and I decided at the last minute to go to grad school in philosophy. So um, I realize now, looking back, I think I just always thought that I could be a physicist and be doing the kind of work that I do now. I didn't realize that that wasn't something physicists do. Let's <laughs> <I> think about <laughs> what our physical theories tell us about the nature of reality. I just assumed that was something physicists do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, from reading about Einstein and, uh, you know, Schrodinger and Heisenberg when I was in college. Um, but then, yeah, as I started to ask questions to my physics professors, I realized, well, they told me very bluntly, these aren't questions like that you should be asking us. Uh, if you can do the problems, you're fine. Just move on. This is, these aren't good questions. And so um, it took me, uh, I got very lucky at my senior year of of college that one of my professors, uh, Tulane, Bruce Brower, said, this is philosophy of physics. This is an area of philosophy. You should be, you know, <laughs> uh, you should know about that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was grateful. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my, in grad school, my dissertation was on issues in the unity of science. Um, I worked with Jaguar Kim and, uh, you know, was interested in, yeah, physicalism is physics fundamental if so in what sense but um yeah i always had these other kinds of questions that were bothering me about you know what we should think uh about the, the fundamental nature of the world what does physics tell us about that and so uh yeah what i'm looking at in the book is you know quantum theories in particular what kind of um picture of reality or revisions to our um pre-theoretical picture of reality do quantum theories force us to make. Uh, and I look into one, one proposal for like the kind of radical, uh, <laughs> uh, radical change to our picture of reality that you might think quantum theory suggests. And that's this higher dimensional picture that I guess we'll talk about a lot. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. Um, yeah. I have a, I have a cousin who was a physicist and, he was also always telling me, you know, just like, all we do is like shut up and calculate, right? <laughs> um, but um, so so the question here, um, I mean, it kind of goes back to, uh, I think of, you know, Locke actually, and people first dealing with the appearance reality distinction as it first appeared, or at least in, you know, in, in more modern philosophy, how philosophers tried to, um, uh, you know, bridge the gap between, you know, the way we perceive things, you know, the reality that we know, and then, of course, the way, you know, corpuscularianism or, you know, some form of atavism was telling us, you know, this is what reality is about. And quantum mechanics, you know, what 
essentially I see what you're what you're doing and what you know some of your colleagues in philosophy of physics are doing is a is a similar sort of exercise of trying to bridge the world of appearances with the world that quantum mechanics tells us is um, at least on certain interpretations is the way the world really is. So what one of the weird things or interesting things about quantum mechanics is that the world that is really there, assuming that we have that interpretation, um, is so very strange. I mean, I mentioned, you know, the cats that we see and everybody's aware of, you know, Schrodinger's cat and is it dead? Is it alive? Is it both? Um, and so there's a lot of strangeness in quantum mechanics that makes it super difficult to make to have it cohere with the way we experience the world. Could you say, could you tell us a bit about, you know, you know, more specifically, what is it that makes quantum mechanics so difficult for understanding it, the ontology that we should adopt? Yeah, so there are several different things um, that are that are puzzling about quantum mechanics. And um you know, one thing one thing that I'll I'll just say up front is I don't think that there's like one uh, one thing clear thing that quantum mechanics is telling us about the world. Like the quantum theories we have, uh-huh. I think what 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 we've learned um, from the experiments you know, that have been done to kind of support the, the strange predictions of quantum mechanics is that there's something weird going on. Um, and so if you want to, uh, if you want to interpret quantum mechanics, meaning you want to, uh, say this is the nature of reality according to our quantum theories, um, you're, you're not going to be able to find just one way. Like there's no, <laughs> uh-huh. we, there's weirdness in quantum mechanics and I guess what the kind of stage of, uh, inquiry that we're at is we're seeing that there are multiple ways to accommodate that in some kind of metaphysical picture of the world. And so what I'm kind of proposing is one way to do that, but there are many different, different options. So, I mean, the weirdness, there, there are a couple of weirdnesses. So, you know, one is um, that it seems that this is kind of more in line with, I guess, what, what you were just talking about uh, particles in, in classical physics, right. in pre or non-quantum physics, uh, particles always seem to have determinate or always have determinate positions and determinate momenta at every time. And in quantum mechanics, um, that's not the case. So in general, particles will not have determinate positions. They'll not have determinate momenta. And so, you know, there are kind of mar- many experimental setups that, you know, suggest that, uh, you know, the most famous is the two-slit experiment. Um, where it looks like you send particles through a screen that has two slits in it. Um, it doesn't look like the particles are going through one or the other slits. It, it seems that somehow um, they're, because they seem to be interfering with each other, it seems like they're behaving more like a wave that's kind of smeared out in some way over uh, different locations in space. So that's, that's one kind of weirdness. It seems like 
seems like, but I mean, people will disagree about this, but Hmm. it seems like quantum theories are suggesting particles don't have determinate locations. And then, you know, another one of the weirdnesses is what you get when you consider uh, quantum entanglement. So uh, Schrodinger, you know, talked about entangled states as states of uh, systems that were, you know, interacting at some time in the past and now have these correlations um, between them, these connections, so that, you know, even if there's these uh, systems are separated at great distances, if you uh, interact with one of them, that'll instantaneously produce a change in the other. Uh, so, so that's another kind of weirdness that we see in quantum mechanics, again, that's been established through repeated experiments. And, um, and so that's, you know, that, that naively, like if you just, you know, at first look at it, it suggests that there's some kind of non-locality, uh, that, that systems, quantum systems can affect each other instantaneously across even great spatial distances. Um, and so, I mean, there, there's a simple way to accommodate that. Just say, well, there's non-locality in nature. We thought there wasn't. <laughs> mm. um, and now we learn there is. Um, and similarly, you know, with the kind of the, the issue that uh, particles don't seem to have determinate locations or determinate uh, momenta or velocities, you could just say, well, that's just, you know, that's just a fact. You know, we don't have fundamentally particles that, you know, little things with determinate locations, what we have fundamentally are waves or something like that. So you can, you can accommodate that um, if you want to have, you know, you know, if you want to, you can do things that way. Um, but uh, for a uh, hundred years <laughs> since uh, the beginning of quantum theories and uh, the early uh, 1900s, people didn't want to do that. So, um, so, you know, there's, there's been mysteries. And so what I'm exploring in this book is uh, a way of kind of taking this wave picture of reality as fundamental as real and, you know, seeing, you know, how far we can push it, uh, seeing how to develop it in such a way that it's, it's clear. It's not like a kind of, uh, (laughs) uh, so that it's you know it's precise, it's clear, it's 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 uh, capable of making predictions, it's capable of providing interpretation of of different quantum theories, um, not just non-relativistic quantum mechanics, but quantum field theories uh, and other relativistic quantum theories, uh, and in responding to many objections that have been put forward to the view that fundamentally the world is just this this wave. Mm. So what, I mean, so the, the title is The World and the Wave Function. Um, so obviously, right, yeah. the, the, you know, key concept here is, is that of a wave function and the position that you defend, which, you know, again, it has its, you know, different, you know, various permutations, but um, the overall picture is one which you call wave function realism. Um, so could you just give us a sense of, you know, first of all, what is, what is the wave function for, for those of us who are not physicists? Um, and then what is, uh, what is a wave function realist committed to 
as opposed yeah. to somebody who's not a wave function realist. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. So yeah, so let's start with wave function. So in so in classical physics, the way that you represent a state of a system at a time is by specifying the positions and velocities of all particles in your system. Okay, so as I mentioned, in classical physics, particles are always assumed to have determinate positions and velocities, momenta, so you can um, you can represent the state of a system as just a list of the positions and velocities of all the particles. In quantum mechanics, particles don't have determinate positions, they don't have determinate momenta. Instead, the way you represent so instead, the way you represent the state of a system of particles at a time is by specifying the system's wave function. So uh, I guess it's easiest to start by understanding wave function just for one particle, okay. right? So the way that you would do that is um, the wave function for a single particle is just an assignment of numbers to every location in space. So you can think of that, those numbers as amplitudes. Generally, when we're specifying a wave function, we care about two numbers, the amplitude and the phase. Uh, but let's just focus on amplitude. So um, a wave function for a single particle system will just be an assignment of these numbers, amplitudes, to all regions of space. And so doing that, you can think about you know, different wave functions representing the locations of the particle as more or less determinate. So a wave function where you know you have some kind of uh, small numbers associated with many, many different regions in space will correspond to a particle that's pretty uh, indeterminate with respect to its location. But if you have a, a wave function that's such that you have like fairly large numbers associated with one region in space, mm. right? So maybe you have something like a Gaussian function, you know, uh, uh, localized over one region in the space. Um, that will be a wave function for a particle whose position or location is fairly determinate, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, this is obviously easier than easier <laughs> if you have a, a, a you know, if, if I could put a draw on a board right now, but um, <laughs> right. if you will. So, okay. So, so we have different wave functions that, that, that will specify the state of a, a, a particle at a time. And some of them where the <clears throat> amplitude is higher around one location in space will correspond to a particle that has a fairly determinate location. But if, you know, the amplitudes are kind of low and spread out among many, many different regions in space, then the particle has a less determinate location. Uh -huh. uh, now, you know, generally we're not just interested in this representing a system of one particle, but we have a system of many, many particles. There, a wave function um, will again be understood as a field, meaning an assignment of numbers to regions in a space. But here, if you're dealing with a multi-particle system, a system of many particles, it the, the, the space will be a higher dimensional space. So it'll be a space with the structure of uh, what in, from classical mechanics we call a configuration space. So um, there, the space is uh, 
3n dimensional. So it has three times n dimensions where n is the number of particles in the system. And for this kind of configuration space, each point in the space can be specified by, this is what it means to say it's three n dimensional. Each point mm -hmm. in the space can be specified by three times n numbers, where the first three numbers we can think of as corresponding to a determinate location for one particle. The next three numbers correspond to, we can think of like the x, y, z dimensions of another particle and so on. Okay, so each point in the space corresponds to a configuration of particles, right? Where all the particles have some determinate location. Uh, so, so uh, you know, if we're in classical mechanics and all particles have determinate locations, if you wanted to represent the state of a system of n particles at a time, you would just represent that as system as one dot, right, at uh, one of these locations in the three n-dimensional space. But since, as we said, in quantum mechanics, particles don't generally have determinate locations, instead, what the way you will represent the state of a system of particles will be as, again, a field, an assignment of different numbers to different points in this high dimensional space. So in general, you know, wave functions, a way to think about wave functions is uh, you know, for a single particle, it's just an assignment of numbers to all the points in three-dimensional space. But if you've got a multi-particle system, the wave function will be, again, a field, an assignment of numbers to uh, locations in a three times n dimensional space. Uh, okay, so that's that's a wave function. Um, and uh, wave functions are just, again, they're the central representational tool in quantum mechanics. It's the way that states get represented in quantum mechanics. Um, and the, the basic dynamical laws in quantum mechanics, so like the Schrodinger equation, um, what that describes fundamentally is the way these wave functions evolve over time. Mm -hmm. um, now you asked about wave function realism. So wave right. function realism is uh, the, the, the framework for interpreting quantum mechanics that I defend in my book, that the book's about. That's uh, a view of like what the world is fundamentally like according to quantum theories. Um, right. And so uh, according to this view, the world is fundamentally a wave function. <laughs> so uh, the wave function, as I just said, and that's um, a way of representing systems by an assignment of points in a high dimensional space. Uh, the, the way that wave function realists understand the wave function is just the most natural way to kind of read off an ontology from that kind of you know, a representation. So you say, the wave function realist will say, the wave function is fundamentally a field in a high dimensional space. And that's what, that's what quantum theories are about. It's about this wave function, this field in a high dimensional space. Uh, and, you know, if we're just talking about uh, non-relativistic quantum mechanics, then the space will be the kind of space I just described. It'll be a, a three N dimensional space, a space with three dimensions corresponding um, to each particle in the system. Uh, so that's that is a very controversial view that quantum <laughs> mechanics is fundamentally about a wave function. I just want to be clear about that. So 
Um, you know, if you look at the way systems are represented in quantum mechanics, um, they are represented using wave functions. So they are represented using assignment of numbers, um, you know, to locations in a very high dimensional space. However, like the view that, and that's the, you know, and so therefore the fundamental uh, nature of the world according to quantum mechanics is everything as a field in a high dimensional space. That's very controversial. Right. Um, well, what, why, right. why is it controversial? Give us a sense of why that's, I mean, it, it seems, you know, it kind of seems like, well, like the simple, it's sort of like the simple view, you know, you've got this wave function representation. What does it represent? Well, it represents the wave function, which you just described. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So let me just go back to a little like the history of, of quantum mechanics. So in the 1920s, there were, you know, that's, this is when quantum mechanics was developed and there was a, uh, you know, mathematical framework for quantum mechanics that was proposed by Heisenberg and Born and uh, Jordan called matrix mechanics that didn't really uh, have a very clear picture of reality um, to go with it. Schrodinger then proposed his, um, his wave formulation, right? An alternative kind of formulation of the structure of quantum mechanics where, you know, you had this picture where, you know, there were fundamentally, you know, the fundamental representation was this wave function and then it evolves over time according to you know, what we call the Schrodinger equation. Um, and so, you know, then at that point, it kind of, you know, it seemed like, well, that's the kind of natural way to under, understand, like, the nature of the world according to quantum theories. But even at that stage, people pressed immediately, like, but the wave function, yeah, it's nice and clear to imagine fundamentally all there is is this wave or this field evolving over time. Um, according to you know this deterministic law, the Schrodinger equation, um, but people pointed out, but the wave function would have to be if you're going to understand that as a field, it would have to be a field in the three n-dimensional space and a higher dimensional space, a different space than the space of our ordinary perception. And even Schrodinger himself was like, yeah, I, that's 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 not realistic. That's not the world we live in. So. We can't just, you know, so he moved back, actually, he, he um, went back to endorsing the Copenhagen interpretation and was like, yeah, we can't read a simple metaphysics off of this, this formulation. And so I think kind of that's how, that's how things went for, for a long uh, period of time. It was just seemed like completely obvious, like, we use this representation of a field in a higher dimensional space to, um, you know, we use this as a mathematical representation of quantum systems, but there is a thought that, of course, really quantum systems are systems somehow defined on three-dimensional space, right? That exist in a three-dimensional space or maybe, you know, space-time. They don't exist in a three-dimensional configuration space. Mm. And so um, that's, that was kind of the assumption for a long time. And I think it wasn't until... The 1980s, when um, sev- you know, it was recognized that uh, the kind of uh, standard kind of 
ways of, of thinking about quantum mechanics had a, a measurement problem. People started, um, you know, addressing the measurement problem and asking, like, you know, what should we want in a, you know, a, a truly like precise and realistic kind of formulation of quantum mechanics that, that people started saying, well, if you want to understand quantum theories realistically, then, you know, they seem to be about these wave functions and the wave functions live in a high dimensional space. And so then, um, you know, this was something that the physicist John Bell kind of put forward saying, like, you need to understand the wave function in this theory as a as a field on a three-dimensional space. And then in the 1990s, this was taken up by philosophers of physics, uh, Barry Lower and David Albert, who said, yeah, so you know, this is a kind of the most natural, uh, you know, sometimes David Albert put it as like the essential way to understand quantum mechanics if you're going to be a realist, that fundamentally the theory is about this field in a high-dimensional space. Hmm. Um, so... So that was kind of like a response. Well, yeah, it sounds crazy, but that's that's the theory. And that's how you need to understand it. If you're going to be a realist about quantum mechanics, meaning you're going to understand quantum mechanics as giving us some approximately true description of our world. But immediately, you know, there was pushback. And I think I didn't see this so much. Like, I feel like in maybe more metaphysics, people just kind of took this on and was like, yeah, you know, quantum mechanics is going to tell us the world is a wave function. Fine. Uh, But in philosophy of physics and the foundation of physics community more um, broadly, people were very, have been very resistant to that idea. So what we've seen uh, in the past, well, 25 years (laughs) is, um, you know, many, many different, uh, clear uh, alternatives to wave function realism uh, proposed. Uh, So I guess it might be helpful because you asked, I mean, the question was like, what is wave function realism? That name itself is a little controversial Uh in uh, philosophy of physics. So wave function realism, as I use it in the book, I'm just using the term in the way that's become common in the literature, so following like the work of David Albert and Barry Lower. So wave function realism, as we use the term, um, is this very specific view that, you know, fundamentally quantum theories are about this object, the wave function, and the wave function is a field in a high dimensional space. So the alternatives to wave function realism uh, I mean, there are many different alternatives, but the, there are many realist alternatives to wave function realism. So alternative um, pictures, according to which they're realists about quantum mechanics, meaning they do think quantum theories tell us something objective about our world. And so, you know, we can um, describe some kind of ontology for quantum theories. Mm. There are many alternative realist ontologies for quantum mechanics proposed. And many of those are realists about the wave function. <laughs> they take the wave function to be something real and objective, uh, not just a kind of mathematical description of, or a way of kind of a tool for you know predicting the results of experiments. They take wave functions as something ontological or something metaphysical, uh, but they're not wave function realists in that they don't say the wave function is the central element of the ontology, a field in a high dimensional space. Um, so, so yeah, so, so wave function realism 
you know, in, in the sense I'm using in the book is still a contra is still a very controversial view. And it's controversial for a couple of reasons, main reasons, but you know, one of those reasons is just the old one going back to, you know, the 1920s, which was like, but obviously our world is not fundamentally three and dimensional, right? It's three dimensional or four dimensional. It's, you know, right. that's, yeah. So um, would, would you say that physicists today in general are, uh, would also find your view controversial? I mean, not just among philosophers of physics, but also the physics community itself. I mean, where do they stand on these issues? Yeah, it's definitely controversial there too. So um, yeah, before I, I'll answer that, but I mean, before I answer it, let me just say, um, in the book, I'm definitely not trying to say, and I, I wouldn't say, like, wave function realism is the one true metaphysical framework for quantum theories. Mm. I don't think we know what the one true, <laughs> correct, right, metaphysical framework for quantum theories is. Uh-huh. Um, as you will talk about in a little bit, uh, I think there are good arguments for wave function realism. And I mean, the central argument comes from this you know, phenomenon of quantum non-locality where it seems like, um, you know, we have many experiments that, that show that assist, you know, systems that are in entangled states can affect each other instantaneously across spatial distances, right, in, in three-dimensional space. And so what that's suggesting is that, uh, or one thing that you could take that to suggesting to suggest is that it's not that there is fundamentally the world is not local, but instead that this three-dimensional reality is not the fundamental reality. And uh-huh. really underlying it is some more fundamental um, reality that exists in a different spatial framework where there isn't non-locality. So that's, I mean, that's what I take it today is the central motivation for this higher dimensional view. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's not like knock down, see, quantum theories are weird, there's non-locality, there seems to be wave-like behavior, therefore we should take, um, you know, therefore it must be the case that the world is fundamentally a field in a high-dimensional space. Um, it's more like, look, there's non-locality, there seems to be this wave-like behavior, therefore we should try to make sense of this. And one interesting way to make sense of that is with this higher-dimensional picture. Um, so that's kind of, that's, that's, that's the way I'm arguing in the book. I mean, that's the way I think of things, but mm-hmm. I think there are many different other ways to understand, uh, the lessons of quantum mechanics. Um, and, and we should be taking them all on board and exploring them and, and seeing which ones are fruitful and useful, uh, for doing physics. So physicists, uh, yeah. So physicists are divided. I think different physicists have different views. Um, there are still a contingent of physicists that are, you know, what we would say, we would describe them not as realists. So not as taking um, quantum states to be representing objective states of the world. Uh, so that's like, that's, that's still very common. So that's kind of like, you know, a Copenhagen-ish view. Uh, but uh, today it's, you know, the kind of uh, way of that that's usually articulated is, they distinguish psi-ontic views from psi-epistemic views. So the psi is, right, the Greek letter psi that's used to 
represent wave functions mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in quantum mechanics. And so some physicists, uh, so this is like uh, Rob Speckins uh, makes this distinction, Chris Fuchs, uh, uh, Matt Liefer, uh, you know, uh, they'll say, uh, you know, the realist kind of views that I, I'm going to be talking about, including wave function realism, uh, are all scientific views. They mm-hmm. say that so they can make this joke that we're Scientologists. Uh, oh. But <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's a bad joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're the Scientologists. And this other kind of view um, today, what I mean, was like the Copenhagen interpretation, but now it's a kind of more sophisticated interpretation of quantum quantum theory says wave functions shouldn't be understood ontically, they should be understood epistemically. So, you know, when, when you see a wave function representation in quantum mechanics, that's just telling you something either, you know, about the limits of your knowledge of, you know, the locations of particles, say, um, or it's telling you something about probabilities um, that you should assign to, you know, measurement the results of measurements you might make or something epistemic but the Mm. wave function those wave function representations according to psi epistemic people um don't represent any kind of objective states of reality so for them it's just wrong to to try to like read an ontology off of these wave function representations Mm. so that's like a, a lot of physicists are still in that camp in my experience uh, but then there are other physicists who are like, no, these quantum theories, you know, are, are uh, you know, we have reason to think that like our most fundamental physical theories will be quantum theories. And so we should take these theories to be describing something objective, right? There are best ways of describing what there is uh, fundamentally. And so we should be, you know, reading wave functions um, representations ontically, and then you know there are, there are different ways that they that they like to do that. Uh, there are some uh, I I don't know I, I I don't know any physicists who are maybe love vitamin um, yeah I don't know any physicists who are really clearly adopting the wave function realist perspective and saying like fundamentally. Uh, the world is a wave function. By that, we mean a field on a uh, high-dimensional space with a structure of a configuration space, right? Like this 3 n dimensional space. One thing that uh, you do find sometimes, so this is like the view Sean Carroll defended in his uh, most recent book, is that the world is fundamentally a wave function, but he wants to understand the wave function as something else, so not a field on um, um, the the kind of high dimensional space that I was talking about, but he wants to understand it as something more like a ray on a Hilbert space. So uh, Hilbert space representations are other kinds of ways of representing quantum states. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of, so, so there are these kinds of high dimensional um, uh, positions that are endorsed sometimes by, by physicists. But I think that we're in the middle of like this kind of transition uh, where maybe there used to be more people in the physics community that were skeptical of uh, quantum foundations and skeptical of the project of trying to give some kind of uh, account of what quantum theories tell us about the world. Um, And now they're kind of realizing, oh no, there are these different ways of of 
being a realist about quantum mechanics and um, they're kind of more open to looking at these different possibilities. Uh, okay. But yeah, wave function realism is definitely, I mean, it's not, it's not a mainstream position in, in, in any of these uh, areas in philosophy of physics, uh, because even in philosophy of physics, um, most, or I, sh- I don't know if I should say even, but in philosophy of physics, pretty much all of the different proposals for what metaphysics of quantum mechanics looks like do still have the ontology, um, make the ontology three-dimensional or four-dimensional. So wave function realism is really the only view that says the fundamental ontology is high-dimensional. So um, among all the really interesting things that I encountered and learned um, reading the book. I mean, you, um, so you're, you know, your, your version of, of wave function realism is, is committed to, you know, that field in a high dimensional space as the fundamental reality. So the word yeah. fundamental here is, is important. Um, and in a sense, you know, you, you know, the discussion kind of, leads to um, uh, or culminates in the idea that, well, you know, the the problem is to how do we reconstruct or recover or explain in some way the three-dimensional or maybe four-dimensional space that we encounter, that that we live in from this very different, you know, high dimensional fundamental reality and and you you do that in two steps so maybe uh you know one is which which you know again i mean i you know i invite you to kind of tell us you know why you do that and and how you do it um uh but the basic idea as i understand it is you know first step um somehow recover or explain the um the uh the world of particles um that you know maybe we're we're accustomed to pre-quantum mechanics or something you know something from classical mechanics um and then and then recover in, in step two the you know the world of three dimensions or four uh that we actually live in um so maybe uh you know since that's kind of where the book you know is 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 going in a way um can you tell us you know how you connect this fundamental weird high dimensional reality you know uh to the world that we live in yeah so this is what well, there are a couple of problems that the wave function realist has to solve if they want to give an answer here. So, um, yeah, so like we were talking about, um, this is like the main, uh, the main argument. There are two arguments. I mean, one is, you know, can you make sense of wave function realism as a metaphysics for non-relativistic quantum, uh, quantum theory, or sorry, for relativistic quantum theories, like quantum field theories. So that's kind of one of the big challenges that that I address in the book. But this other one, maybe 
right? It's historically like <laughs> the main objection that people will give to wave function realism, which is how if the world is fundamentally a field in a high dimensional space, how could it be that there are things like people and tables and chairs and all these three dimensional macroscopic objects that we know by perception uh, exist? And so the wave function realists, I mean, they don't really have to answer that question. I mean, they could just say, be error, you know, give some kind of error theory and just say, well, you're just wrong. There is no three dimensional reality. Uh, but I don't, I don't do that. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think uh, it's it's uh, important because we do know there are low dimensional macroscopic objects through perception. Um, I think it is important if you're going to be seriously saying the world is fundamentally a field in a high dimensional space to say how a field in a high dimensional space can somehow constitute or build up uh, low dimensional macroscopic objects. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's important. So there, there are two, actually, the, there are two things that, that, that need to be done here. So, so first, uh, so as I said earlier, um, it's you know important when you're addressing this problem to think about the nature of the fundamental space. So the fundamental space, um, you know, we just let's just think about it um, for non-relativistic quantum theories. Fundamental space is going to be this three-dimensional space where each point in the space corresponds to a complete determinate configuration of particles. Right in in three dimensions, right? Uh, because you know if you're looking at a point in that space, it's specified by three n numbers, where the first three numbers correspond to the x y z dimension of the first particle. Next three numbers correspond to the x y z dimensions of the second particle, and so on. Mm -hmm. So if you like, you can just say, um, okay, so the world is fundamentally this field where you have different um, numbers assigned to different points in that space. But you could just say, well. If there is really high amplitude, the wave function has like a really high amplitude around a location in the high dimensional space, then you might say, well, okay, so that's telling us the particles in the system are pretty, or in the world, have pretty determinate locations. And so you can just say, well, that means that there's some objects clumped together with these locations, right? Corresponding to right that 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 number mm -hmm. that so so they're like that seems like you know something at first that the wave functionalist could just say, <clears throat> but there's a problem with that, and this is what I call in the book Montan's challenge. It's it's um, a problem that was brought up in some papers um, in the early 2000s by Brad Montan. Um, Tim Maudlin also raises this problem. Uh, so the, the issue is like, okay, that is true that you there is this um, correspondence between locations in the high dimensional space and locations of particles in a three dimensional space. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, um, all there is in this picture is just this, you know, assignment of numbers, a field on the high dimensional space. And the space itself doesn't have like any three-dimensional structure. It's just a space of three dimensions. Um, 
And so there isn't anything, the wave function realist doesn't think like there's anything um, in the structure of the space that really like carves up the dimensions into threes or carves it up in any particular way. So what Montan argued is basically like, yes, you can map locations in the three N dimensional space onto locations of N particles in a three dimensional space, but you could also map it, you know, into, you know, three the locations of three N particles in a one dimensional space, or you could map it onto, uh, you know, three N over two uh, particles in a two dimensional space and so on. There are many, many, many different mappings of mm. states of the wave function onto low dimensional ontologies. Okay. Mm. That's, so that's the challenge. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's just right. That's, that's correct. And so it can't be the case if you're trying to explain, you know, how there really are tables and chairs is just to say, well, look, you know, there's this mapping of low dimensional ontologies um, onto the high dimensional ontology. You have to somehow say, why is that a preferred mapping? Like what makes that particular mapping of particles in a three dimensional space or particles in a you know particular three-dimensional space, because there are all different ways of associating the dimensions in the high-dimensional ontology with three dimensions, um, right. right? What makes one particular one the real world and all these other just mere mathematical mappings? So right. that, that's, that's one challenge. And so, yeah, you say my, my, um, my answer to this like fundamental challenge for wave function realism goes in two parts. Yeah, because of this the first part I take it is answering Montan's challenge, um, right? Answering like what privileges one mapping o- over the others, and the answer to that is basically like the way that uh, the way that low dimensional ontologies uh, get constituted out of the wave function isn't just by virtue of a mapping, like a synchronic mapping at a time of wave functions uh, to low dimensional ontologies. And this is something that, you know, has been uh, pointed out by wave function realists for a while. So uh, you know, this is something David Albert's talked about in his work. So what he does is he basically gives uh, functionalist analysis. So he says, you know, the, the, the core idea is that the way that three-dimensional ontologies come to being isn't by, you know, these facts about synchronic mappings, but instead by dynamics. And so what he'll say is the behavior of the wave function over time is such that it's able to play the causal role of low-dimensional, a low-dimensional ontology. Hmm. And so that's, you know, it anybody you know familiar with functionalism in philosophy mind will recognize that that this is a this is a kind of functional he gives a functionalist analysis of three-dimensional ontologies in terms of the wave function so the wave function plays the causal role of particles with three-dimensional positions uh so i i think that that's you know that's interesting that's you know one of the chapters (laughs) of the book talks about that um, that is a way to respond to Manin's challenge successfully because you're not saying like, it's just by definite, right. By definition of what it is to be a three-dimensional system. If you know, this, something plays the causal role of a three-dimensional system, it is a three-dimensional system, right? If, if right. Uh, if, if you're a functionalist about space, then that's, then that's fine. And so that's, um, that's one account. So I'm not, I'm not sympathetic to that account. 
I think that um, it's just not true that um, the the wave function or any of its parts is capable of playing the causal functional role of uh-huh. low dimensional particles. And so, I, you know, that's kind of explained in the book why why that why that doesn't work. So I go for another, and I have another strategy, um, and I can ex- I can explain that. Um, yeah, so let me let me just explain it quickly, and um, you know there are more details in the in the last chapter of the book. So I don't think that is the case that the wave function is able to play the causal or any parts of the wave function play the causal functional role of low dimensional objects. Um, so I don't think functionalism is the right thing to do, but but here is what. Uh, but I, but I still think it's right that you should be appealing to the dynamics of the wave function, and that's the way to recover low-dimensional ontology. Mm-hmm. So what I say is, um, we can recover facts about the three-dimensional ontology by appealing to facts about symmetries or dynamical invariances. Uh, so in uh, quantum mechanics, there's a way of um, you know mathematically stating what it is for there to be. Uh, certain symmetries uh, or, you know, and, and so that the way that that is stated is in terms, you know, symmetries like um, uh, translational asymmetry um, uh, or uh, permutation of particles, uh, permutation variance or uh, rotational symmetries. Um, and so the way that that is stated is um, by um, stating an equivalence between basically an equivalence between different wave functions. Uh, And what I say in the book is that if it is the case that there is an equivalence between, you know, two wave functions, uh, say, you know, an initial wave function and the one that's transformed according to a particular operation, Mm -hmm. that will correspond um, that can correspond in different low-dimensional ontologies to certain symmetries that we would recognize as uh, permutation symmetry. So, like a case where just different particles or locations are switched around, or a translational symmetry where the whole system is just moved over in space, and so on. And so, if it is the case that a dynamical invariance, so an invariance between Two wave functions, um, a certain dynamic or a certain invariance between two wave functions corresponds in a three-dimensional ontology to some symmetry, but it doesn't correspond in, say, a two-dimensional ontology or a one-dimensional ontology to some symmetry. Then that's suggesting that the three-dimensional ontology is actually tracking structure that is there, right? Fundamental structure facts about these invariances, that the two-dimensional ontology or the one-dimensional ontology or the weird three-dimensional ontology or whatever isn't. And so that's the way I answer Montan's challenge. Um, the argument is, you know, suppose it is the fact, it is the case that there are these dynamical invariances, these relationships between different wave functions, and that those relationships correspond in a, in a particular three-dimensional ontology to things that we would recognize as symmetries then it seems like the three-dimensional ontology is tracking structure that is real. And therefore we should take it with ontological seriousness 
that's what makes it special. That's what distinguishes it from these deviant low dimensional ontologies. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's the, that's, I think the first thing that needs to be done is you need to say, if you're going to say the fundamental nature of the world is this field in the high dimensional space, why does it seem three dimensional? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and right. and so that's a kind of, that's the answer to that. Um, that's only, as you point out, like that's only, as you mentioned, like that's only part of the answer to how can our world be fundamentally a field in a high dimensional space? Because once you say, okay, there's a reason to think there really is a three-dimensional reality, um, then there's still a question of, well, what is the metaphysical relationship between that three-dimensional ontology of particles or what our fields or whatever, um, the way we were talking just now would be particles. Um, what's the relationship between that three-dimensional ontology and the high-dimensional field? Right. Uh, and so there, and I think this is an important question, right? I mean, you could just say, well, somehow the uh, <laughs> particles are grounded in the high-dimensional field, but that's not very informative. No. Uh, what we want is to understand the kind of metaphysical relationship, right? So you know, for Albert, it's, you know, this functional relationship. Uh, I reject that. There has, so I have to give some other story. And, and what I do is I argue that there is, there is actually no um, theoretical barrier to understanding the wave function as a whole and the particles as parts. So the, part, the particles, three-dimensional particles as parts of this higher dimensional field. Uh, And so um, that's something that I propose in the book. uh, And uh, yeah, it's controversial. I've been having a lot of conversations with people about that. Uh, But, uh, but yeah, that's the kind of first step. And then, you know, there's more kind of metaphysical details of, you know, now we've got to get macroscopic uh, objects out of these particles. Um, in three-dimensional space, uh, but I, I probably already said too much. <laughs> well, um, no, I mean, it's 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 a complicated story, but you actually, you know, lay it out pretty clearly, you know, I think um, in the book itself. So it's hard, to, it's hard to give a summary, but I think you have. Um, so one of, um, so what do you, I mean, we, we've only got a few minutes left. So just to, uh, you know, just kind of bring us back to the way philosophers, you know, usually talk about about reality. Um, you know, we're, we're very, uh, it seems to me that very often we're very wedded to the atomistic picture. Um, you know, a lot of examples uh, that we will give are in terms of atoms as the fundamental reality. Um, and of course, that is just not going to be true um, on your picture and on on similar pictures. So so how should you know philosophers um, you know start you know thinking about uh, you know reality? I guess you know when they when they when they talk about what's there and when they uh, talk about what we know. Um, uh, how how does this picture sort of make a difference to the way philosophers or not philosophers of physics um, should be thinking about, um, you know, the world that they'll often kind of 
you know, wave at in some way. Um, you know, should we, should we keep talking about atoms uh, the way we usually do, um, you know, assuming that, oh, the physicists will figure it out? Um, or, yeah. you know, should we, should we make a, you know, concerted effort to, to start talking in ways that really take quantum mechanics to heart? So, um, yeah, so I haven't talked about um, other realist interpretations of quantum, quantum mechanics, but they are there. So, yeah, the wave function realist takes the world fundamentally to be a field in a high dimensional space. And the central argument for that, like, we, I mean, we haven't really talked about in the book. I mean, there's this prima facie argument. Well, it seems like the central tool in quantum theories uh, uh, for representing the states of quantum systems are wave functions, right? But there's a, the, the, that's only like a prima facie argument because then their next question is, well, why think wave functions are fields in a high dimensional space? And the central argument for that is because, well, the, the, the reason that you might think that is you might think that when you have these kinds of non-local correlations, that they're ultimately explained by some more fundamental metaphysics that is local. And that would mm-hmm. be this, again, this wave function metaphysics of a high dimensional space. Um, there are many other alternative uh, ontologies for quantum mechanics that are proposed. So like... I, I, you know, I could name them: ontic structural realism, the multi-field view, primitive ontology. Uh, there are whole, there are different holisms. There's priority monism. There's a whole bunch of different alternatives. Um, but uh, space-time state realism. But um, you know, many of them do still have an ontology of objects in a low-dimensional space. I mean, all of sorry, all of those That's have right. something in low-dimensional space. Some versions of holism have just one thing <laughs> in a low-dimensional space. Uh, so, you know, right now, I think, right, we we don't have any way to say one of these is obviously right and the others is obviously wrong. Instead, what we have is arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, one of the main rivals to wave function realism is a primitive ontology view. Uh, that's associated with, well, Valia Lori is, I mean, philosophers defending that with physicists, Shelley Goldstein, Zangi, Dor, um, they're wanting to say that they give a different argument, which is that we should in general think that the ontologies of our physical theories are objects spread out in low dimensional space and three space or, or four dimensional space time. And that's where we start. And so they want to understand wave function representations differently as still ontic, but as um, uh, something more like like a uh, law, uh, something that's guiding particles or um, fields in space time, you know, that's that's guiding them and their behavior over time. Uh, So I don't want to say that, oh, philosophers, metaphysicians should be learning that there are no particles in, you know, fundamental, the fundamental picture isn't particles in space. There are ontologies for quantum theories that have that. that. Um, And so I think the reasonable attitude right now is, you know, tolerance, (laughs) you know, thinking about Carnap and his uh, principle of tolerance, right? We, 
we should have tolerance. You know, we should allow people to be developing different ontologies for quantum mechanics and then ultimately see what's most fruitful, what's you know, most clear, what's um, most useful for um, understanding future quantum theories uh, that are being developed, theories of quantum gravity and so on. Uh, that's what we want to be doing, keeping more options on the table. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, your question, should metaphysicians uh, or philosophers stop thinking of the world in terms of particles in, in three-dimensional space? I think it depends what they're trying to do. So if they're trying to say, like, this is necessarily what the world is like fundamentally, then yeah, they need to stop doing that because we don't know <laughs> if fundamentally the world is particles and three-dimensional space uh but if you know they're they're trying to they're not trying to do that so they're trying to understand like the relationship of um you know some kind of microphysics to uh a macroscopic ontology or something like that then you know even this account the wave function realist account i don't know any wave function realists who would say there aren't particles in three space they just mm-hmm. say the particles in three space aren't fundamental Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that's perfectly fine, um, you know, for naturalistic projects and metaphysics to assume that there are particles in three space. Yeah, that's a completely legitimate description. We don't want to give that up. Uh, that's been really mm-hmm. important. Statistical, you know, physics, uh, or, uh, you know, to, to think about, you know, uh, systems as um, you know, microscopic systems as, as ultimately made up of, you know, little things in three space. Uh, so we keep that picture, but, but there's, yeah, there's just a question about whether or not that's most fundamental. Right. Uh, and so as far as, you know, metaphysicians wanting to do analytic projects about like, you know, what the world is like fundamentally, uh, yeah, they need to, to keep open the possibility that there, there might, physics might show us that the world is ultimately uh, different than that. It's ultimately higher dimensional or it's ultimately field like. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we are, um, we're out of time. Um, this has been a great, interesting and informative conversation. Um, but, uh, I like to end with a, with a general question about, you know, what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on now? Are you, uh, following up this book or have you turned to other projects that you're also working on? Yeah. Um, so definitely following up on this book. I mean, there's been, yeah, I've been fortunate like to have a lot of great conversations with people since it's come out. Um, you know, some things obviously I wish I would have incorporated more into the book. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I feel like my response, you know, to in the last chapters of the book to how you can build a world of microscopic objects out of a high dimensional field uh, is just a sketch. And so a lot of the details, I think, you know, I, I want to fill in more. And so I'm having good conversations about that. But I think the next kind of, well, more independent project related to the book is I don't, I, so we talked earlier about the, the debate between sci-epistemic and sci-ontic approaches yeah. to understanding quantum mechanics. Uh, yeah, so that's one thing I don't really take on the book. I just you know, move forward saying, hey, uh, 
In recent years, there have been several different realist interpretations of quantum mechanics available, uh, where I'm talking about not solutions to the measurement problem, right? That's something we haven't talked about here. Uh, but, you know, different approaches to looking at what a kind of world is qu- or quantum theory is describing. And I just, you know, take that on board that we're going to be understanding, um, you know, wave function realistically somehow. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's, there are still people who want to say that we should not be doing that, that we should be understanding um, quantum theories more instrumentally or, uh, right. We should be taking wave functions as epistemic, and so yeah, I'd like to fill in that that bit of uh, that that a little bit more um, because it isn't it isn't something I took up in the book. So I think we really need to. There are some kind of nice uh, discussions, uh, uh, more by physicists for why we should have a kind of sci-epistemic view. And I, I take those seriously. And so I'm you know, interested in kind of developing those and seeing um, whether there really is a case for, for thinking we shouldn't be understanding our quantum theories ontically. Uh, cool. Um, okay. Well, um, I think we're done. Uh, but I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with New Books in Philosophy. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks so um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for reading the book. And uh, yeah, it's great to have this conversation. You've been listening to my interview with Alyssa Ney, professor of philosophy at the University of California at Davis. We've been talking about her new book, The World in the Wave Function, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And thank you for listening.